Glad to see everyone here again and um, see Jackie back. Yes, under control. No, it's working. No, I, we thought it was blood pressure here. Is keeping you away. Yeah. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Doing pretty good. Okay, we'll take that. Just ah, quit taking it. No. You know who's sitting right near you here, you know? I said, you know who's sitting right near you here? You talking like that? Just quit taking it and all that? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, there you go. Okay. Well, we're glad glad you're here today and glad to see Steve and his dear bride are here with us all the way from Boaz again. Going to have a son. Amen. That's good. And you got that nailed down. A son. Do we have we have a name here? You got you got a name yet? Oh, you say Alex? Great. All right. That's makes somebody else happy here, huh? <laughs> we got we got us an Alex over here, so we got a crowd of Alexes in. All right. Well, that's great. And don't forget our April eighth meeting coming up at six o'clock, and uh, that'll be an important important meeting. The men will want to take note of. And then if you like eggs, well. You know when to be here. Jerry announced that. So, oh, I guess you're going to have hamburgers too and hot dogs. Yeah. But. Okay. Colossians chapter one. Oh, we have another guest here too with Seth. You thought I was going to forget, didn't you? And not say a word. I'm not going to do that. Were you going to introduce your guest? Okay. Hi, Olivia. I knew her name, but I just want Seth to have a chance to. Okay. We're glad to have you here, too, Olivia. Appreciate you being here. All right. We've been working our way through Colossians, and um, we're in a particular part of Colossians that just is very weighty, and and you, know, you're, you get to looking at this, and you think, wow, I could just really dig into this, and that we could take through probably a couple of years to work our way through Colossians. Then I think, oh, that's not a good idea. Better speed it up just a little bit. So then you try to find a balance between, well, what do I include and what do I leave out and things like that. And it's hard to, you know, already know me. It's hard for me to leave anything out. I'm going to cover everything I can. And um, we're going to try that today and see what happens. And we only got, I'm going I'm to try to stick with three verses, maybe four. So, <laughs> well, we'll... We'll see what goes there. <coughs> and uh, I, I'm, I, I looked back and some, some of this stuff in the previous verses. I was wanting to go back there. And I said, no, nah, I don't think I better do that. I uh, better just keep moving. Uh, so we'll do that. Well, I want us to reread verse 16. That's not that we're necessarily going to go 
back in detail. Actually, let's just read verse 15 too because it's all part of the context here in this section. Where Paul says concerning Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, for by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. Now we moved from all that Paul was speaking of in this prayer in verses 9 through 14 concerning <coughs> the growth and the maturity and the increasing knowledge of the Colossian believers to the prominence in which Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, plays in all of this. And the first thing we saw was Christ's prominence in creation, that he is, as we would put it in the vernacular, Maybe you've heard this, maybe you haven't, but he's numero uno, number one. There is no other. You cannot put anything above him. You cannot even put anything beside him. He is there alone in the top position of all of creation. And one of the things that I think is important for us in this verse, which we did mention earlier, was the little word in verse 16, by. You know, by, when I say, or you would say, or we would just say in conversation, somebody did something by such and such a thing, that speaks of the instrumentality by which it was accomplished or done. And he's not stating here that Christ, the creation came about by the instrumentality of Christ, because we saw that little word there is actually in other places here, most other places here, translated in, and it has to do with being in a certain locale or a location, a sphere, if you will, so that when he says all things, uh, or excuse me, for in him were all things created. That is, with, with the totality of the Messiah, the anointed one in mind, were all things created. And then he says, concerning all these things that are in heaven and that are in earth, he names all these various things, the visible, the invisible, the principalities, the powers, the dominions, the authorities, and so forth, uh, the principalities, all things again. Now you see that phrase repeated over and over, all things, all things. Verse 17, you see it twice, all things, all things. Verse 18, all things. Verse 20, he says it again, all things. And then at the end of verse 20, he says, or things in heaven. The things, the things, the things. And it's everything. It's all that has been created. All has to be or or to do with the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything is centered in him. And that tells us something else. Matter of fact, there's another phrase here. Um, 
Uh, let's see, where was that? I had it down here a minute ago. His uh, more thing about him, all things consist. That's not, yeah. Let's see, four. Well, I don't. I lost my spot on that. I'll find it here in a minute. But the point and the and what it, what it's expressing here is is that creation has a purpose. Creation has a goal towards which it is moving, and Christ is the center of that. He is the focal point of all of creation. And then we saw, as we move into this next session here, we mentioned this, that it says here that he is the head of the church, the new creation. Verse 17, he is before all things. Now, that little, you know, it's just amazing and, and really, Mike's been helping us along with this in our studies. The little things you see in just little bitty words and the value and importance of them. And, and I, he's made the statement, and I, I agree with him. Matter of fact, I've made it before um, concerning the time when we are before the Lord and we get to see the, the scriptures through different eyes, that we're going to see such a perfection such a structure, such an order in this word of God that it just would amaze us if we could see it right now. But to now, for now, these things are hidden. We have to seek them out and search them out. And this little phrase, he is, it, it's really <coughs> very, well, in, in Greek, it's in the, what we call the emphatic position. That is, it takes the prominent position at the beginning of this sentence, and it's there for emphasis. He is. And let's go back. I want you to turn back to John chapter 8 for a moment, and let's take a look at another expression very, very similar to this one that will really ring home as to what he's talking about here. John chapter 8 and verse uh, 58 which will be a very familiar verse to you. John chapter 8, verse 58. All right, right almost to chapter 9. Where Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Before Abraham was, I am. And that little expression, I am, is from the same root, the same word, actually, as he is. When Jesus said, I am, and he was comparing that to when he said, Abraham was. You could never say that about the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was. He is the self-existent, always existent one. But you see, even the very uh, expression Abraham was tells us that Abraham had a beginning. And he says, before Abraham was, before he had a beginning, I am. I was there. Before it ever happened. And so we see back in Colossians, in verse 17, when he said, and he is before all things, it's the same expression. There was no beginning to the Messiah. 
the Lord Jesus Christ. He is before, in terms of place or position, all things. And, (coughs) here we go with this little word again, by, rather, and in him all things consist. It is in Christ that all things consist. Or, as you've heard this, probably heard this word expressed, or other translations say it, they hold together. All things stand, literally stand together in Christ. Or they subsist. Now, I want us to take a look again at a couple of words, how this is used differently in some other places to give you the idea Luke chapter 9, verse 32. Luke 9 and verse 32. And then for the ones that are fast, you want to go ahead and turn ahead, go to Romans chapter 3 and verse 5, and we'll be looking at those two passages. Luke 9, 32, and then Romans 3 and verse 5. (coughs) All right? Now remember, we said that this expression, the all things uh, consist, we said could also be rendered all things stand together. Now I want you to look at another place where exactly the same Greek word is used. No different. In verse 32 when it says, But Peter and they that were with him were heavy with sleep, and when they were awake they saw his glory and the two men that stood with him. Here it's referring to two people physically standing with Christ. And so it means in the sense of nearness, to stand near in the locale of where Jesus was. He stood with. And then also I want us to look at Romans chapter 3 and verse 5. Romans chapter 3, verse 5. And there, Paul says, But if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man. Now that's not the easiest thing in the world to understand when you read English. But that little word, well, say it's not such a little word here. This bigger word, commend. But um, if our unrighteousness commend, it's the same word as consist in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 17. What's the idea here? What is the thought? But if our unrighteousness command or stand together with the righteousness of God, then what shall we say? That is to say, well, and if you might, if you went to some other more literal translations, you would see them say something like this, that, (coughs) excuse me, if our unrighteous, or excuse me, yeah, if the, the righteousness of God 
establish our unrighteousness. What shall we say? And this makes sense of the question, by the way. Because, remember, as Paul says, if, if this be the case, then he says, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who takes vengeance? In other words, if it's our unrighteousness that establishes the righteousness of God. But he didn't say it that way. But it sounds like that if you read it to King James here. But what he's doing when he says, like just back like in where we just looked in Luke 9.32, when they saw these two men near Jesus stand with, you need to have in your mind the thought of, well, I don't know if you want to say it. It's like the thought of comparison, but you're not comparing. It's this idea that, well, we saw Jesus, and then we saw these other two men standing with him. And so what he's telling us here is that if, if we see God's righteousness and we look at our own unrighteousness, and when we look at our unrighteousness and we view God and we say, oh, we're unrighteous, he's righteous. And if it's our unrighteousness that commends or establishes or proves the righteousness of God, then Paul says, well, What's he punishes? What's he going to punish us for? Why the vengeance? Why the wrath? If we're just doing our job, if our unrighteousness is proving it, but notice what he says in verse six: God forbid. Because think about this: if that were the case, if God had created us so that we would be unrighteous in order to prove or show forth his righteousness, then how could he have a right to judge us? We would be fulfilling all that he created us for. If that were the case, Paul says, no way, God forbid, let it not be. That's not the case. Rather, he says, for then how shall God judge the world? He would not have a basis for doing so. And so this word is used in the sense of when you see something near or standing with something else, then it establishes or proves or commends itself to that other thing. Hence, we have these various translations. Command, establish, or prove this very thing. And so back in Colossians 1.17, when he talks about in comparison with the Lord Jesus Christ, when you put all creation together... It all consists in him. There's a direct relationship. It's all for him. It is all in him, as the little word by should have been translated. In him, not by him as instrumentality. And then he goes on to tell us, with that respect then, and he is the head of, of the body, the church. He's over all. So not only is he over natural creation, but he's over the church as well. The new creation. He's the source of that. The life of that. The head speaks of, you know, the life. 
Now, we know that the life of the flesh itself is in the blood. But you take the head off and life is over. We can lose an arm, we can lose a leg, we can lose an ear or whatever, an eye. We can lose some of our what we would think would be our most vital organs or members of our body, and we can survive and do sometimes quite well. And some people can do some very remarkable things with the things they have left. I meant to mention we had a missionary couple just, well, within the last week, um, had a baby born with six fingers on each hand and a cleft palate and no eyes. Didn't live, but I don't think it made it a week. And I sit here and I think of the trauma and the emotion that a parent would be going through. You know, there's a, a sense of relief on one hand that this child didn't live. It's not going to have to go through life like this. Yet on the other hand, you know, you, you want to love and care for a child no matter what it is that God gives to you. And I've seen, I don't know if you've seen pictures or videos of, I saw one the other day of this, um, I don't remember if it was Japanese or Korean, she was Oriental. She was playing the piano with her toes. She was born with no arms. And she was playing the piano with her toes. I mean, it was incredible what they were, she was able to overcome. But you take the head off, we don't do anything. Life is over. And if we don't have Christ as the head of the body, and by the way, see what he's saying here, the head of the body, the church, the head of the body, the assembled gathering, and we went through this at length about the church, the assembly, those called out to assemble together, just like we've met here this morning, which Paul says is the body. And so in this body, we have several members with each designed parts, each gifted to fit in a certain specific area of body membership and body life. And over all of that, Christ is the head of the body, which is also this assembled body that's meeting here this morning. He is the head. And without the head, there's no life in this body. And unfortunately, in many a church today, that's exactly what has happened. Oh, he's preached and talked about, but when you go to the activities of the church, rather than the prominence of the New Testament teaching about love and good works and caring for your neighbor and the orphans and the widows and those things that are the prominent things, we've just got loaded down with programs. We got this ministry and that ministry. We have a full-time paid staff member to head them up. And all those good little things. All sounds good when you look at it on paper, doesn't it? It's a great little organization. You got the senior pastor up here, and then you got his assistant, and then you got all those staff members out here, and phew, put it all together, and you can make that old thing work. There's a good many pastors today that if you just took them from here and moved them over here to the head of a corporation, they just get right along fine because they're used to organizing and putting things together. But the New Testament instruction concerning the life of the body or the church 
is about, and we could just, and this is where you could just take off and go for miles and hours and days and weeks, months, about the responsibilities that are truly ours within the church. Loving one another, caring for one another, ministering to one another with good works. Try looking at, I can't remember now if it's 2 Timothy or Titus, one of those. And you just, I took a green mark. Well, I probably got them right here because it's just right a couple pages over, isn't it? Was that? Um, didn't think of that, so. I believe it's Titus, yeah. <coughs> oh, yeah. Let's just look at that for a second. Speak, just give you one idea here. The prominence of the New Testament teaching about the responsibility of the New Testament church. That's members, individual people. Look at, um, well, we'll start with chapter 1, verse 16. He's talking about the disobedient ones here. And he says, unto every good work, they are reprobate or disapproved. Then you go over to chapter 2 and verse 7. In all things, showing thyself a pattern of good works. In verse 15, at the very end, he says to be zealous of good works. In chapter 3 and verse 1, he says at the end of that verse, ready to every good work. And if you go over to verse 8, in the middle of that verse, he says that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. And he's not done yet. Look at verse 14. And let ours also learn to maintain good works for necessary uses. You see, these things are the the prominent things. There is nothing in the New Testament about, about having all these various ministries and organizing and administrating a functioning organism in that sense of the word. We're to be busy doing the... when we're. When the scriptures tell us to be busy about doing the Lord's business, the Lord's work, that's what he's talking about. And to care for the orphans and the widows and those that are hurting and have needs. It's one thing, see, for us to stand here on Sunday morning and say, let's welcome everybody and let them know how we appreciate them and we give them a hug. And I like that. But it's another thing, see, when we leave here as one long ago said, put shoe leather on that then and go do something with it and put your good works to practice. And so that has to do with physically, literally carrying out good works, not just with your neighbor, but he says, um, uh, it's in 1 Timothy, but especially, he says, those who are of the household of faith. This is a very, very practical outworking of what he's telling us in this little verse right here about the nature of the church and what it is to be. And Christ is the head. Everything else after that is just a member of the body. That's it. There are no prominent positions, senior positions, assistant positions. You just have a place in the body. And then he tells us there, 
concerning Christ, he is the beginning. The first. The beginning. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Well, actually, let's don't go there yet. The beginning. The RK. It's just like where you get the word architect. What's the beginning of a building? What's well, not even the cornerstone? It's not even preparing the land, is it? It's getting a drawing together. It's it's the beginning of the structure. It's something that's written down on paper. He is the beginning in that sense of the word. And then he says he's the firstborn from the dead. He's the beginning and the firstborn from the dead. I want us to look at that word firstborn for a moment. I want us to go back now to 1 Corinthians 15. (coughs) 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 20. And another first that is mentioned here. And here he says, first fruits. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. And in verse 23, he says, but every man in his own order, Christ, the first fruits. First fruits has as, its, as the, the first word of this compound word, first, like you have firstborn, first fruits, they both come from the same root word. You have the first who is the first fruits as as if it was like a, a sacrifice. In other words, Israel was to bring a first fruits offering. That was Christ. In Colossians, and, and by the way, he says in verse 20, but now is Christ risen from the dead. And I want us to notice the connection here between that and the resurrection. Since we're coming up on Resurrection Sunday shortly. And then over back in Colossians, when he says again, firstborn from the dead. Does he mean he was the first one to rise from the dead? Well, it means that and more. He was the first in the order of resurrections to rise from the dead, to have a resurrection body, of which those who are followers of the head of the church and devoted disciples of his will one day attain to. That's what Paul cried out for in Philippians chapter 3. Why, you know, there's so much of this just ties together in the, in the New Testament, and you really hate sometimes to run all over the place. But on the other hand, if you don't go look at it with your eyes, then it's too easy to miss. In Philippians chapter 3 and verse 11, this familiar verse here where Paul says, If by any means I might attain unto 
the resurrection out from among the dead, or as sometimes is said, the out-resurrection of the dead. Paul's desire, his labor, was to experience that resurrection. Jesus Christ has already experienced it. He's the head of it. He's the first one. And he's our example. If we want to know that resurrection of which Paul's talking about there, to experience that, and I think he's talking here not just of order, but of quality, the kind of resurrection it will be. And so he says, if you want to attain to that, Paul says, I labor and strive if that by any means I might attain to that. And Jesus Christ is put forth here by Paul to the church at Colossae to say to them, he is the firstborn out of the dead. (coughs) The word from is the same word back there in, in Philippians, ek where we say it's out-resurrection, the ek-resurrection, ex-anastasius, it's, it's ek here, out from the dead, the dead ones. And so then he goes on to say, why? What is the purpose of all of that? That, he says, Paul says, the purpose, that in all things, all of creation, everything that's been made, of which he is the head, he might have the preeminence, the first place. To be number one. Now, I know and I don't know where, I know, and I'm not stepping on toes on purpose here. I'm just saying this in general. But there's a, a book going around that's very, very, very popular right now called The Shack. I don't know if you've run across that yet or not. The Shack. You haven't heard that one yet, huh? It's a very popular book. But in this book, and I haven't read it, but I'm going by reviews of others that have read it, uh, concerning it, well, boy, I've got to be careful. I'll go way off on that. The basic gist I want to get to is an outright denial of Christ, um, the the um, the accomplishment of Christ's shed blood on the cross as a payment for sin. He just simply did not. He said, "I just I don't believe that," and that's it's being promoted in that book. And I've I, I heard a couple ladies. Um, where was I now? I, I can't remember. I two ladies they were talking about it, and I made some comment about it in a negative way because they were thinking, "Oh boy, this is so good and great." Da da da. Have you read this? No. And I was listening to them, and so I, I said my little spiel, and I said, "All right, give me your email, and I'll send you something." And I did. I don't know what they did with it, what they thought about it, but I let them know there was a whole other view to understanding that that book, and it. And it wasn't on a positive light. Pardon? Oh, yeah. It's a part of the, what we'd call, what you've heard me mention this, the emerging church movement. Very prominent. Very big. That's exactly right. I saw I'm glad you mentioned that. It's laying right out there. Yeah. 
That's right. As a matter of fact, the title of it, um, will, let's see, will your, something like, will your church be submerged by the emerging church? <laughs> it's, it's literally just sweeping the country like you wouldn't believe. And it's, I'm just telling you right now, it's something you want to stay away from. You don't want to be a part of that. Verse 19. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. It pleased the Father. Now, this is something very interesting as well. When it said, you know, this word, it, it pleased, in Greek, it means to think well. And it's just like you, the, the root of that is from the same word where we say a eulogy, which means to, a funeral. You say, it means to speak well. Here it's eudekio, to think well. And it says here, it pleased the Father. And, of course, you see fathers added there. And you look back in the context and you wonder, well, where did they pull that from? You know, a lot of things like that are very, very legitimate. But you wonder, where in the world did this one come from? And I'm not sure how they determined to add the father in here. Um, I read one commentator where he said uh, it, that, that it, this, the, the structure of the uh, word there, it pleased, demands that it would say either... God or the Father, one or the other. But one way I think they may have come up with it is that every time this phrase is used in connection with deity, and of course if we are making the presumption here, which I think is a valid one, by the way, that Jesus Christ is deity, then in every case where it's used with deity, it's always used in reference to God the Father. And so it was a valid, a valid insertion here is what I'm trying to say. It fits very well. And if you'll just go, in my Bible at least, across the page to chapter 2 and verse 9, and look what it says there. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Now that word Godhead there is a word, it's where we get our word for God, theos. It's theos. Uh, theos, sorry, hard one to get out there. But it's just where we get our word for God, or Greek word for God, and it has to do with the fullness of God, the divinity of God. In other words, all the powers and the attributes that are contained in deity are contained in Christ. And that word, little word fullness there, where it says it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. That word fullness is really interesting. It just means full. <laughs> One of those easy ones. It just means to have a cup or a barrel or whatever, and it's full all the way. Complete. Nothing more to add. And so when he's talking about the fullness of the Godhead residing in Christ, that he is all there can be. And, and most commentators think that Paul's taking a little sideswipe here at Gnosticism, which was just being introduced in the church about the time Paul was writing this. Now, I'm not so sure he was, 
I think he was just purely laying out the doctrine concerning the Lord Jesus Christ and who he was in his person. But nonetheless, if we understand what Gnostics taught about deity, they used that same word to describe their deity. That they had fullness. They had all the powers and attributes of a deity. And, and Paul's contrary to that is saying, no, this is all in Christ. He has all the fullness, all the powers and attributes of the Godhead or of deity. And so when he lays all those things out for us, he's just taking some very careful words and very careful expressions to let us know about the prominence and the place of Jesus Christ, both in creation and in the church. And it just really amazes me how we can come to the conclusion that, and I know, I mean, I'm sure you've come across this too, of those who think they can just get along fine as a Christian apart from the church. Now, I don't mean apart from the organization, the church. I think I made that pretty clear what I feel about that. I'm talking about the body, the church. The assembled group here. How do you think that you can survive and function and fulfill God's will and be pleasing to him apart from this body? I mean, given all that Paul's just told us here in his word. And that doesn't mean that you have to be here every Sunday. I mean, if you're obviously if you're on the road traveling somewhere, then it's a good idea to be a part of a body somewhere else. But I think it's also a very smart and wise and scriptural thing to be united with a body that is local to you. Now, I know much is made about the universal church and uh, the worldwide church, and I believe in that. I believe there is a, a worldwide body, one body of Christ, but I think there's a body right here as well, and it's local, and it's visible, and we can see it. And we are, we sitting right here then, who claim to belong to Christ, are a visible part of that expression of what the church is. This is, this is what we are. Now, the next question is, is are we fulfilling our role? Are we carrying out our part as a member of that body? Well, maybe you haven't even asked yourself yet, what's, what am I in the body? What is my spiritual gift? What am I qualified to do? But the Bible makes it very clear, and Peter I think, expresses this quite well to let us know that all of us have at least one gift, at least one. And I know sometimes it's not always easy to determine what my spiritual gift is, how I fit into the overall body of Christ. But let me just say this, that if you are doing that, if you are using your gift, you are fulfilling all that God purposed and put you here for and made you for. I'm, that's all I'm doing up here. 
There's nothing any, nothing any more special about me than that right there. I, I believe with all my heart that my number one gift is teaching. But God moved me away from that. Or I know teaching and preaching overlap. But there is a sense in which you're a preacher, a proclaimer of God's word. And you're, I, one of the things I noticed right away when I came here, two and a half, almost two and a half years ago now, was that I realized the way I brought God's word was going to have to change. I think I even mentioned it to you a couple of times. I kept wanting to turn around and write on the board. I was such a habit of using a, 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 a board to write on, and I would put words and draw pictures and arrows over here and a you know, this over here, I mean, I, I use a board. I'm teaching, I'm, I use a lot of visuals because that's how I learn. And I figure if I learn that way, you might as well. I don't have that privilege up here. But God has obviously given me that gift as well. I mean, that's the position he has given to me to do. Well, in some sense, that makes it a little easy for me because I know... <laughs> I know I can't be here. If I don't have the gift for preaching, then I better not be here. But it would behoove us to know what our gift is and then be busy using it. Whether it's ministering, serving, or, you know, well, all we'd have to do is go back to what? 1 Corinthians 12 as one place to go to, at least, and read. There's a nice big long list there of gifts that are spoken of in the church that God has given to all of us that we can use. And, and you know, Paul didn't give a big, long expression of these things here, but they're all tied up in that little passage when you talk about the church, the body, and Christ as the head of it. And if we're going to serve, if we're going to use our spiritual gift in the church with any kind of effectiveness, with any kind of blessing to think that, well, when I stand before the Lord at his judgment seat, I have hope of getting a reward. You better have done it in relationship to Jesus Christ with him as head of the church. Because just to go out and serve on your own and do your own thing will not avail. Oh, yeah, you might be doing a lot of good things, but what you get from Paul here is don't forget who the head is. The, the source of the life of the church and all that we do within the church is going to be expressed in him and him alone. No other place. I think I better stop there. If I start on the next verse, I can guarantee you we'll be late for lunch. Just remember where all of this is going to end. When we said that there is a purpose to Christ being a part of creation, I pretty well imagine that you were with me, <coughs> though I didn't say it. But your mind probably went way ahead thinking, yeah, to the end. When all is consummated, and God brings his son, Jesus Christ, back to this earth. 
and it's not consummated then. He fulfills all that he's going to do for the next thousand years with his son ruling this earth, bringing in that just and verdant and peaceful world. Then at the end of that, what happens? More judgment to take place. At the end of that, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, then the kingdom will be delivered back to God the Father that God may be all in all. And there will be a end, a goal attained. When Jesus said, I am the first and the last, you know, it's teleos, it's the word, a goal, an end, to be arrived at, to be attained to. And it's going to happen one day. And I sure as the world want to fit right into where God has put me to be a part of that. And I don't want to miss out on it. What we don't hear from the church today is that you can miss out. You, you can be a professing Christian all you want. But if you don't adhere to what Paul's given us here, then it is possible to miss. And we don't want to miss. So let's stay on target, keep Christ as the head, make sure he's the focus of our heart, the focus of our life, that he is held in prominence I don't know, I'm not so sure I got across what I really wanted to say about Christ being the life and the head. But that we have a, the scripture calls it a vital union with him, a union with the head, a relationship with the head, to walk in a daily relationship with him. And that's, that's important. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is full of life, and everything that you've given us and expressed to us speaks about the life that is promised in Christ Jesus our Lord and the life that we have to come. How I pray, Father, that we, our hearts and our minds would be filled with the knowledge that you've given us in your word to attain unto that life. We know the simple prescriptions given in scripture to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and the things that you've promised to do. But we also know that um, believing entails with it uh, the idea that we need to obey. That we need to be true followers of Christ and all that he's given us in the gospel. So we pray, Father, that through these things and through our study of your word that we would come to a greater comprehension, a greater understanding of what it means to walk out these doors and to live as a Christian ought to live. It's in Jesus' name we pray.